Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of Finding Our Way. And we are now deep into uh, kind of our detour for at least the next month or two, uh, continuing on into some weekly podcasts that are specifically digging into how we as a church are responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Obviously, I've said this before, but it's a modified format. Uh, so, uh, both myself and in this case, uh, Nate Dirks were working remotely from our homes. So, uh, Nate, welcome here. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a description of what, uh, working from home looks like for you just to start us off? Yeah, this probably sounds familiar to, to a number of people who would be listening, but I'm working from my basement, which was sort of like a real mess and sort of in process. So I've, cause I'm here now, I sort of cleaned it out a little bit more. And uh, working a lot from here. And also, we've got our two small boys at home, Malachi and Isaiah. So just getting a feel for working different hours and navigating family life at home with them, as well as getting work done and, and connecting in those ways, too. This was a basement that you were in the process of finishing before the coronavirus pandemic, correct? Yeah, sitting down here and just realizing how unfinished it was gave me the impetus to like <laughs> use my time to get it done and cleaned up and I'm like, oh, I should probably do that now that I'm sitting here realizing what needs to get finished. Yeah, wild. It uh, puts pressure on all kinds of aspects of our lives, doesn't it? Yeah, we're trying to create space. It's hard to do. Um, Nate, I want to take a step back, and I've asked everyone in the last number of weeks just to kind of re-enter this phase because I know for me it seems like forever ago when when we left for our Compassion sponsor visit and everything on that day still felt relatively normal. And all of a sudden, after a day or two of that trip, everything started changing so fast uh, and so repeatedly. Can can you remember back to when you first got a sense that our world was about to drastically change? Yeah, I love that question. I feel like that's one of those classic questions for, you know, those kind of world altering moments. Eh? And, and we probably all are evaluating that right now. And I think for me, um, the, when I kind of realized it was so on March 11th, uh, I had an evening meeting actually at Katz right across from our, our Glenridge location. And uh, I was meeting with some folks from, from Glenridge and we were talking that evening. And uh, then I had a hockey game right after. So I went into another, to, to the four pad in St. Catharines, had a hockey game, or actually this one was at Ridley. And, you know, we had mentioned a little bit about COVID and sort of like, as we had talked beforehand, but I went into the hockey game and when I got out of the game on the radio, um, they were, they were saying that the NBA season has been canceled. Yeah. Uh, some players in the NBA are, are testing positive for COVID and we, they, they took the drastic measure of sh- shutting down. We can see that we're probably going to be shutting down the other major sports in the next couple of days. And, and Tom Hanks has COVID-19 as well. And I just came out of that, that hockey game just it was late at night there. And I'm just in my car. I'm like, oh, this is really happening right now. And that was kind of the moment, I think, when it hit me. And I think things have really obviously escalated from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was almost the identical moment to us because we were traveling that day. And it was only when we, not even in our, our layover, But when we finally arrived at our hotel uh, near the Guatemala City Airport and we were having dinner as a family and and now scrolling because we had Wi-Fi again, we were scrolling our social media and people were saying, oh, you know, exact same things. The NBA has players testing positive. They've canceled or suspended their season. And Tom Hanks and his wife have uh, they've (laughs) tested positive. And it was just like, boom, all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, everything had changed. It was wild. Um, can, yeah. can you remember back listening to that, uh, at just at a personal level, how that made you feel? Yeah. I mean, and it's weird cause I don't want to sound callous. Cause I think, I think, I mean, like emotions and feelings have kind of, there's been a range at, at different times, but I feel like one of my first reaction was, was I was intrigued 
in a weird way, I was thinking, I don't know if you've ever, like, you notice like when sometimes there's like inclement weather, so, you know, like the, you know, there's going to be a big snowstorm or, you know, there's, there's some, there's a drought, whatever, there's different kind of inclement weather that I feel like you kind of see things when they're, when they're shutting down, people acting differently, like every, everything just kind of feels differently around us. And for me, kind of noticing that this was coming, I was like, what is this going to bring to our human behavior around us? And there was an element of it just at my first gut reaction was, wow, how is this going to change us as people? And how are we going to respond to it? That was the first. And it's, there's, there's been different emotions probably since then. Would you have been able right from the get-go to kind of palpably feel a difference in how you were processing this because of your faith? I think so. And I think, I mean, and again, there's been a, I think there's been a number of different layers of my of faith that has kind of hit me at over the last few weeks. And one of the first ones that it, that it kind of hit me at was interesting because I kind of felt like, as it especially as it started to escalate, I, I me remember kind of thinking, do I need to justify God in all of this? There was no moment for it for me where I was saying, you know, the idea of like the, the problem of pain, you know, it's an ongoing question that we probably all have as Christians and as people in the world. And it's like, does God look bad in all of this happening? Do I need to justify him to, to people around me? And what do I say when people question God's presence in this? And I think that was one of the first things that actually kind of struck me. Do I need to go to bat for God in all of this? Or what does that mean? Hmm. Yeah, especially coming from a third world missionary environment. Uh, you've probably felt that feeling before where you've hmm. seen pain and heartbreak in disproportionate ways and sort of develop the instinct then to feel like you need to go bat, go to bat for God. And so it's it's interesting that that would be your reaction. Yeah, and I don't know if it's the correct instinct because I don't think God needs, like he, God is big and he's, he's all powerful and he doesn't need that. But it's also, I think, a good way to sort of analyze, well, what does it mean for me to, um, to, to not only realize that God is present with me in this, but to be present for God in this as well. Mm -hmm. I think it, it raises some good questions. Yeah. And uh, obviously it was very early on then after that Wednesday, March 11th, that we started processing this as church leaders. So knowing mm. that you were thinking about this from your own perspective and from the perspective of your own family, but also immediately from a Southridge perspective, what were some of your preliminary thoughts before we got into the conversation as a group? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there was for sure an immediate like, oh no, I mean, we're, if as a church, we're, what we seek to do is be in close relationship with people and to help other people to be in close relationship with each other and to, to bridge gaps between marginalized people and, and people like, like various people groups. There's all of that, that like, that's what we're trying to move towards. And just, I mean, there's a, an initial, just probably selfish, just like, Oh man, this is going to mess everything up. Like, you know, and my, my second thought as a church leader is, uh, and, and was, I think there was an element of it where is how is this going to help us to kind of change in ways that we may have needed to It's like, so first of all, this is going to mess things up. And then it was, or is this gonna is this gonna help advance um, maybe some of our blind spots and for us to, to see some things? And that's definitely an ongoing question that I don't I don't have all the answers to, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, that'll be a bit of a wait and see. The initial reaction, though, in a in a world, especially in your world, where we say so often that friendship makes the difference. Um, if we're not going to be able to easily and accessibly establish relationship. Uh, you know, we're we're in trouble, <laughs> and you can't help but but uh, feel that as a knee jerk reaction. Um, I, I know that early on, and this was you know really the whole time I was in Guatemala, we were leveraging technology to have some kind of quick and preliminary meetings as a leadership. As you were experiencing those, what would you feel were some of the emerging values that 
that uh, you know were starting to precipitate when it came to how we saw the the church moving forward. Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I, I think one of the things I felt as a as a leadership team, I think that we saw within here at Southridge was that we really wanted to be able to model obedience to the wisdom of our government um, immediately. And I think sort of in a Romans 13 kind of submission to governing authorities kind of way, one of the first things that I saw as a group was just that we wanted to be able to say, we're seeing, we want to respect the wisdom that's coming through our public health system, that's coming through our federal government, through, through our provincial government. And how do we do that? How do we model how to do that? How do we make sure that we're the people who are the most up to speed on what's happening? And so that we can help our communication to flow to our Southridge community to be most up to speed on that as well. And I feel like that was one of the first things that, that emerged, which was that respect for, um, for how we need to model that. I think another thing that, that came out for me was just the, the desire to be a steadying presence for our community in the midst of all this. This is obviously like a destabilizing moment um, for all of us. And for us to, to be able to say, okay, we as a church community, we want to be present here for our Southridge community, for the, large, for the body here. And we want to be able to bring a certain amount of stability just in a highly destabilizing time. And, um, and I think just being able to, and, and there's, there's subsequent, I think, things that, have, that emerge from that in terms of, well, how do we even grow as a church? How do we grow in, in our relationship? And we're talking numerically here. I'm talking like, how do we deepen our faith in this? And how do we deepen the ways that we're serving each other in this too? And I think those would probably be like the, the top three things that kind of emerged right away from what I sensed as we started talking. Yeah, it's interesting that you start with the government because I think that the first in my memory, one of the first ways that we started engaging as a leadership was receiving the uh, restriction from the government, processing the restriction from the government uh, on gatherings of 250 or more. And so I remember then we, you know, you could kind of default to starting to do the math of, well, which locations are 250 or more when they gather and could we keep some open or, and then finally we said, you know what, if, 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 if what the government is trying to do is restrict contact, let's get in sync with that. And you could see a bit of a wiggle at the beginning, but you're right. Right away, the default was to was to try to track with what our, our civic officials were were providing. And uh, and your comment about the destabilizing is 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 equally true. You know, so much of and and this will be part of the uh, the subject that I want to dig into specifically with you. So much of our ministry is as a church to those on the margins. But the destabilizing impact of something so drastic like this uh, has had a significant impact on our actual community. And so the attention paid to our community, not just the attention as a community paid to those on the margins, that's been kind of a shift, I think, in, in focus as well, at least in these early weeks. That's right. Um, do you remember any sort of memories of when we first gathered as a leadership, what some of our initial goals were um, or, or, you know, kind of first things first, we're going to make sure this. Uh, do you remember any of those early values? Well, I'd say some of the early values were being able to say, I mean, what are the, the big rocks in the jar that we've, that we've had, that we have as a community at this point, and how can we make sure that we can can maintain those in the midst of everything that's happening right now. And if we're saying that we as a community value being able to, um, to look out for each other uh, within our church community and communicate with each other, great. We need to be doing that. And how do we do that? 
when we're when we're gathering on Sunday mornings and, and throughout the weeks. So what does it look like to, to be able to, first of all, maintain those, those high values that we have? It's not just a nicety that we do these things. We feel that it's vital to who we are as people, as Christians. And when one of those huge elements of who we are as a church as well, as, as you've alluded to, is the ways that we're reaching out to people in our community and being able to say, well, we, how do we make sure that we're, that we're the things that we believe and we've seen are, are vital in our community and reaching out to marginalized people groups? How do we make sure that right now um, we're leaning into that rather than away from that? And, and I think there was just sort of that sense of what's happening within our, I don't think, I don't think this is blowing our own horn to say this, but I think that we feel the things we're, we're called to are important. And in this moment, it was so important for us to be able to say, let's uphold that, uh, even in the midst of what could just kind of send us all out into orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is what I want to specifically dig into with you, knowing that I, I just want to audit for uh, our uh, members who are listening, you know, how, first of all, you know, our inspiration ministry, our connection ministry, now our action ministry, we're actually processing these things uniquely. From your perspective, what were some of the kind of immediate or or, or early challenges that you felt we were facing as far as delivering our action ministry? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a number of them. And I think one of the first things that emerged, and I think we've used a bit of this terminology over the last number of weeks is is the idea that in moments of crisis, people don't suffer equally, that people who are already experiencing challenges and, and suffering are going to suffer all the more. And so for us, it was being able to say, okay, in our anchor cause, um, in the, what we believe are vital services in our anchor causes, how do we let our friends uh, on the margins, how do, we, how do we make sure that they're not suffering more than they, are, than they already are or experiencing more challenges than they already are? And one of the things would have been, I mean, for example, in Welland, we've, you know, we have our meal supports that we provide for our friends there, and they come into our, to our community in two capacities, where they would come in and we have these big social gatherings to have these meals together. Um, and then we also have these smaller gatherings where we're cooking meals together and, and creating social support and seeing how people are doing, getting to know people in a different demographic than ourselves and, and providing that very tangible nutrition that, that people need. And the question was immediately there. I mean, how do we how do we do meals together and honor these values of both being social together as a, as a group because that's a huge value, and also actually physically nourishing people um, when we're not supposed to be together right now? Yeah, that was really I think in action the 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 big challenge that we started facing and and continue to face today with the isolating and you know relationship group gathering restricting and now the the physical distancing. Uh, that's being imposed, knowing that the the supports that we provide, those programs aren't just programs and supports. We talk, we call them playgrounds for relationship to happen. And when friendship is what makes the difference, when those playgrounds no longer are even allowed to function and you're trying to have deference to the government, well, now you've got to really be creative and, and relook at how we're going to provide the kind of ministry that we're trying to provide. Well, absolutely. And that's the thing, right? Like, yeah. How do you be that social support in a time when it's, when we're starting to use terminology, I think we've distanced ourselves from the idea of social distancing and we're trying to say physical distancing, yeah. but you know, right away that was, it, it was a, it was a new thing for us. And what does that look like? Yeah. And I think, I mean, in Vineland, the, the, the version we saw there was, you know, possibly even more so because the first thing that happened was obviously like borders are starting to get shut down. And so our friends were supposed to come, from the migrant worker community from various countries in the Caribbean, immediately what we're seeing is, oh, they're not coming. That's not happening this year. We're, we're gearing up right now. Like our, our community in Vineland, we're, we're making our plans. Things are gearing up. 
and now all of a sudden our friends are, it doesn't look like they're going to be coming. We're going to probably touch on this more in a little bit, but. Well, let's dive into that. Yeah. Let's dive into that right now, Nate, because what, what I want to do is give everyone a bit of a picture on how each of our anchor causes has morphed into providing the kind of support that we desire to provide in relationally based ways uh, in a modified format because of the relational restrictions that have been imposed. And so starting in Vineland where you're the most familiar, uh, you're right. First things first was wondering whether there was even going to be an anchor cause because uh, borders were being closed and migrant workers originally weren't being allowed to enter the country. So talk about that journey for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, I mean, we obviously felt again, like in, we felt like it was a wise move from our government to be able to say, okay, wait, let's like, let's take, take stock of what's happening right here and we need to shut things down. We understood that at the same time, from our perspective for in, in a few different ways, one, um, we're recognizing locally here, like in, in our, in our local economy, our, our migrant worker friends aren't just, you know, just coming in here just because it's fun. This is both vital for them and for us. And we're realizing, you know, with, with the borders being shut down, this is going to be huge for, for Ontario. If we're, if we're missing out on our friends being able to come out here and provide the vital work that they provide. And we're also on a personal level, when we're thinking of our friends, um, we're thinking of them back in Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago and St. Vincent and Grenada and Dominica. All the guys are back there and their families are relying on the income that the guys get when they come out here. And this is something that's very specifically huge for their stories where they're uh, in, in a lot of ways, not able to get work at home. And that's why they've been able to reach out into this program and be a part of this. Well, if you're not able to get work at home, but now you're stuck at home and there's still no work there and it's even, and, and it's shutting, like, what are you supposed to do? And you're starting to hear stories of our friends saying, guys, we don't know what to do for our families right now. Uh, my family is, is suffering right now and, and they don't have, they're, they're not going to be getting food. We had one friend in particular um, who's out here early. So he'd actually made it to, to Canada, but because of the immediately, uh, the immediate kind of uh, knee jerk reaction that had to happen, he wasn't able to work for a few weeks. Um, he's from Jamaica. And so his family back home wasn't getting income. And so he was talking to us and saying, Hey guys, um, my family doesn't have any food at home. And we had amazing folks from our Vineland community who were able to step up and, and talk with him. There was a back and forth going on and they were able to help provide and, and, and support him in the midst of that to help provide for his family back home until he was able to be working here. Then you had a lot of guys who weren't even going to be able to come out. So that started to happen there early on. And as things kind of went back and forth, at first it sounded like they were going to be able to come and everybody was celebrating. And then we kind of had to put a pause on that and that, that had been miscommunicated from the government. And they kind of rolled that back and said, wait, wait, wait. No, we're not inviting the guys out. And then the, the farmers uh, across the country really just really rallied and they did a great job of explaining to the government how vital uh, our friends in the migrant worker community were. And the government was, was amazing. They responded well and they've, since then, they, 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 they've opened the borders to our friends. Um, the guys have been starting to come out and we're really thankful for that. And one of the things I think to also just sort of keep in mind right now, and that's a prayer, not all the countries have opened their own borders to allow their guys to come here. So we have a bunch of guys who have come from Jamaica, but not all the guys have been able to come. So from some of our friends, even from, from Trinidad and Tobago, for example, are still back home waiting for, to get the go-ahead to be able to come out. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on here, and there's a lot more we could say, but it's been a very interesting process and challenging one for sure. Yeah, knowing that they're getting quarantined, they're in isolation for a couple of weeks right off the pop when they, they do show up in Canada. So far, Nate, what, what does supporting our migrant worker friends in this physically distanced way look like? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, but it's one of those things where, again, we start from the premise of what are we being instructed to do? And then how can we 
um, how can we work within those parameters? And so the instructions are at the moment that, yeah, they have two weeks of quarantine. So what we're working with right now, for example, would be if we're going to be dropping things off, we can't be even going to onto the farm property during those two weeks. And so we have our welcome kits, which we've, which we as a community have uh, been able to contribute to. We have those packed and ready to go, uh, as well as hand sanitizer, which was donated by Dylan's. You know, the, the distillery has been doing some really cool work there. And so what we're doing with those is we have people coming to. Um, we have one of our, our community members, Karen Buller, and she has all of the kits in her house and all of the, the hand sanitizer. And so farm leaders now are when when they know that their guys are coming, the day before their guys come, they go to Karen's, they find the out on her porch so that the, the bags will be sitting there ready for them. We do this in a way where nobody's actually interacting, but they go and pick up the bags and then drop them off on the porches of the guys before they come and then they leave. And then when the guys arrive, they find the porches. So we're even trying to pass things on, you know, even sort of like a, maybe a meal for the guys for when they first arrive without anybody actually interacting, which is a challenge, but we still want to be able to meet those needs and, and, and to make our friends feel welcome. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, they've all got cell phones. And so you're able, you know, once they're in town, you can have a bit of relationship, but still it's, it's very hard to keep that relational tethering, isn't it? That's very true. Um, absolutely. And, and one of those things as well, like some of the challenges that come there when you mentioned cell phones are the guys have their phones, but most of the guys, when they do get to Canada, they have to switch to a different um, SIM card. And for reasons we won't get into here, most of the guys get a new SIM card every time they come to Canada but it's really challenging to do when you can't go out and get a SIM card. And it's also challenging to do when you're getting here and we can't physically go to the farm, talk to them in person and then help them go get a SIM card. So we're also trying to navigate some of those things mm -hmm. through various channels. And there's just a lot of communication happening right now to make sure that our friends are supported and that communication is happening. Yeah. Uh, shift gears. I know that things have also been uh, complicated. You mentioned this earlier in our two food ministries in Welland, our Harvest Kitchen and Collective Kitchen, uh, talk about the, you know, even in the last three or so weeks, how the strategy has evolved uh, in what we feel like is the most appropriate way to serve those uh, food and ultimately low income needs in the Welling community. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because even a few weeks ago, it in some ways feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Yeah. Um, but when some of these, when some of the new restrictions and uh, they started to emerge, we wanted to be able to navigate as best we could. Um, so at first we, we felt like the, the closeness of contact in our collective kitchen, we needed to, to stop right away. So we put a pause on that and we had to, um, to stop our collective kitchen, which is when, which, which yeah, is where collective we have groups of people being, coming into. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. The collective kitchen being the, the preparing of meals together. Exactly. Right. That wasn't going to be reasonable. Exactly. We couldn't do that close quarters. The idea of collective kitchen is close quarters. And so we said, okay, let's pause that for the moment and, and see where this goes. And then the larger scale was our, um, was our harvest kitchen dinners that we did that we do in conjunction with a few other partners in the community. Um, ours was one of the, I think it was potentially like the next meal coming out when everything kind of really exploded. And so our partners were looking to us and they said, well, what, what are you guys going to do? Are you going to, are you going to do the meal or how can we do this? And I was just really amazed by our volunteers and by our, our director, uh, Annalise in, in Welland, because um, they really rolled with it pretty quickly and they managed to turn what was normally a huge um, sit down, you know, tablecloth and, you know, the, the silverware kind of dinner together into a, into a takeout meal. And uh, it's not our wheelhouse of what we prefer to do, but we knew this was the best we could do right at, in this moment. So we had our folks um, showing up and we had all of our volunteers there who had um, basically prepared the meals and packaged them up and had them ready to go for our folks to, to come by 
and one by one just pick up uh, a warm takeout meal and bring that home right away. And that was something that we just felt was great. And we did that for a few weeks. Um, but just before the end of March, a number of our partners were just really feeling like this wasn't going to be uh, viable anymore. And we were kind of feeling the same thing that at this point, even with the, the social distancing, physical distancing that was possible, it was still probably putting our folks at too much risk. And, uh, and we realized that we needed to shut down our harvest kitchen, shut down that version of, of meal support and say, okay, how are we segueing this into what's now the most responsible way that we can operate as a community? And we realized that there was two options. One is we lean into our community partners and say, let's go to bat for you guys and work with you. And we're already, we're already friends and partners. So how can we support you? Or we re-envision how we were doing our own collective kitchen. And, uh, and as those conversations emerged, we realized that working within our collective kitchen was gonna be our best bet for specifically supporting a number of our folks um, who are at home and we're, we're realizing we're starting to, uh, to feel the crunch very specifically. And so that's what we've kind of emerged as now. We're, we're, we, we've rejigged it and we're restarting our collective kitchen in a way where we have different groups going into the, like groups who live in the same home, basically families, um, going into the kitchen on, at different times and then having to clean up the kitchen and sanitize it after they're done, but cooking different meals for, um, that we, like we would do in collective kitchen put those meals aside. And by the time you have the last group coming through at the end of the week, those meals get packaged. And then uh, this next week, this will be our, our first time being able to send these out, but they get packaged and then delivered to the doorsteps of the people who are relying on this type of meal support. And I, I know that in, in addition to the food preparation, you guys have also put a lot of energy into the maintenance of relationship, even in situations where we're not going to, for now, provide uh, food support. Uh, there are a number of clients from Collective Kitchen and a number from Harvest Kitchen that you guys have identified and tried to kind of match to different church members in order to keep that relational bridge strong. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we have, there's there's a number of individual relationships that are already existing with our, our Southridge, um, you know, volunteers who come out and the, and the, and they, they get to know people who have come in as guests for our meals. And so a number of those relationships are there and, the, and folks are messaging back and forth. Hey, how are you doing? How's the family? You know, the conversations that we're all having these days with each other. And they're able to do that with our, with our guests. And that's been great. But we've also realized that in a lot of ways, a number of our guests and other people in our community um, who, who have been relying on these meals and who have also been, also been relying on the social interaction that they provided, um, obviously weren't receiving that now. And so we said, well, um, we reached out to our folks and said, would you be willing for us to, to match you up, to partner you up with somebody from our Southridge community? Uh, who's going to be reaching out to you and just saying, hey, and, and you're going to be, be going back and forth. And so we had a lot of, a uh, number of uh, dozens and dozens of folks who, who said we love that. And so now we've been matching people up and uh, the response has been great uh, from our Southridge community and saying, yes, I would love to connect with somebody and who've been making that, uh, you know, reaching out in the ways that we're all learning how to do now and saying, what's, what are the best ways to still communicate? And they're doing that and supporting folks in a social way. And, you know, one of the things that we just pray for and are hoping for in this is that this can create a new dynamic um, that hadn't been there before and hopefully will advance relationships, the friendship that makes a difference, that this will advance that uh, in a unique way in this season and then beyond. Yeah, that people aren't just relating during the programs, but now there's a lot more direct relationship while, uh, you know, while this pandemic is in play. Exactly. Um, Nate, we've got a couple minutes left. So I know that one of our chief concerns when coronavirus first kind of got on our radar 
uh, was how to maintain the service of our homeless shelter in St. Catharines. I know you're not as directly involved in this. And the way that you have been involved in this is working with Erica Singer and Chris Fowler and others to try to mobilize volunteers. We had to shut down volunteers early. And so now things have been basically just running off of a staff only uh, provided way. Uh, anything else that you want to say just for people's awareness about what's happening at the shelter these days? Yeah, I mean, even though, I mean, I think first of all, our, our staff are just rolling with things and changing there all the time, but they're just really at the front lines of what's going on right now. And we've really been appreciating that. And then when it comes to, to the things that Erica and Chris and I would be leaning into in regards to providing the social supports with their programs and our events and really creating those opportunities to create, to create friendship and meaningful relationships um, within our community, uh, with our friends experiencing homelessness, um, that the, obviously a lot of that's had to change. That was one of the, those are some of the first things that had to pull out. The very first thing I think as a Southridge community that, that stopped when all of this kind of uh, happened, I think the very first thing that was canceled was our Muskoka Woods retreat, mm -hmm. which was, you know, I, that was the very first thing that we canceled, right? And that was kind of the forefront of like, oh wait, things, things are really about to change now. And that's a huge thing in our, in our calendar for the year for our friends where we look forward to, to that connection. And that's been the case with all of our programs and events. And what we want to be able to do is to be able to realize that, that our folks still have those same needs and we still want to have that same meaningful relationship in terms of being there to provide social connection with each other, being able to, to continue to do what we do, which is to help to break the cycles of, of homelessness through relationship, through that friendship that makes a difference that we keep referring to, that we've seen being so effective. And we don't want to stop that right now. Uh, despite what's going on in the world. We want to realize that it's going to take creativity and it's going to take effort, but we have to lean into it. And, um, and I think we've just really been um, realizing that there's, there's a great spirit and heart in our Southridge community of folks saying, hey, what can I do and how can I still be a part of that? And we want to be able to facilitate that and still make that happen. And so to be able to do that, there's, there's some very simple things, first of all. Um, there's things as simple as being able to write to our encouragements at southridgechurch.ca uh, email address, just write an encouragement. Those ones are going to be going up and, and on the screen um, right there in the, in the shelter for our friends who are, uh, who are feeling kind of stuck there right now. And just being able to hear that, that we're with you and we're, we're supporting you. That sounds like a small thing, but it's actually huge. Just really being able to show that you're on board and that you're, you're supporting our shelter community. Um, there's ways that we're also starting to, to look into and brainstorm being able to say, how can we create more of those one-on-one -on -one connections? How can we um, work together to, to be playing games together uh, online? Uh, what does it look like to be able to be um, looking to, to support each other? And how can we be educating each other in ways, you know, we've been doing this, these third row events to sort of say, how do we um, uh, get to know our community in a better way and what, what it's experiencing? Well, we're starting to look now into, okay, how do we do that now, especially in light of, well, how can we learn more about what our uh, friends experiencing homelessness are experiencing right now in this crisis? Mm -hmm. And so all of those things are still relevant. And we really would ask that our Southridge community leans into being a part of this um, rather than leaning away right now. Yeah, yeah. And that really has been the default of our church, I would say, and especially our leadership in this season, that in a crisis, this is a time to lean in, not back down. It's a time to rise up and let the life and love of Jesus shine like never before. So, uh, you know, final question as we wrap up, Nate, do you have any final encouragements or maybe challenges to our members you know, when it comes to them being able to contribute in a, a season like this, and and more importantly, 
for us just being the kind of missional church that we desire to be that's not primarily known for how we gather or where we gather an hour a week on Sundays, but how we extend the love of Christ in compassion, uh, particularly those on the margins, particularly in this unprecedented time of crisis. Absolutely. And I'd say before I say this, with what I'm about to say, there's ways to be able to reach out to me by email to um, and to our staff here to be able to, to follow up on this. Um, and what I would just say is resist the urge or the default to pull back and wall yourself in right now. I feel like that, that's an obvious natural default for all of us right now, but we need to resist that urge because I think that this is a time where as a church, we need to rise up and reach out like you just said, Jeff. And if that sounds intimidating, I think, I mean, I'd just like to tell our community that it doesn't have to be. And in fact, this is actually a great time for us to be able to take steps that we may have been intimidated to take before. Um, that we as a church have in very tangible ways, we've got very tangible ways for you to be involved right now. And if you've been involved before, continue right now. And if you haven't, there's actually a different threshold right now for what it looks like to be involved. And it could actually be a great way for you to segue into to knowing what this is like. And it could actually be an opportunity that maybe you've even been waiting for, where it's felt a little bit difficult but there's actually really simple and straightforward ways that we want you to connect and have meaningful relationships that we're going to get you involved in, meaningful contributions to our friends who have experienced marginalization, uh, marginalization in our community. And I think what I'd finished with is, I mean, years from now, when people, people are going to ask you and you're going to be, we're going to be talking about, like, what did the COVID era look like for you? And what I would love for us as a community, and for if you're listening, for you specifically to be able to say is that this was a time when you really felt the reality of what it means for community to look out for its most vulnerable. And I would love for that to be your story. Amazing. Thanks so much, Nate. And uh, thanks for the updates. Uh, members who are uh, listening, I hope that you're inspired by all the ways that already we've been leaning in and trying to see the church rise in the way that it most ought to, shining the light and love of Jesus uh, on those who need it most in the most vulnerable and marginalized places in our society. So uh, be encouraged, like Nate said, be involved and uh, look forward to ongoing updates on how we're navigating uh, the coronavirus pandemic around here at Southridge as we continue finding our way together. Take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.